for me, that's my responsibility. My role is to amplify their voices, not to give them a voice because nobody is voiceless. Everyone has a voice, but a lot of times it's just about the reach and the platform in which they can share and own their identities. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Hey everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Uh, Isra, please go ahead. Hi everyone, I'm excited to be here, Maurice, so thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. My name is Isra Shakir. I am an activist and an advocate working and committing my life to fighting against harmful policies that target communities and always advocating for better social impact and change. And is there, um, how did that start? I mean, tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, where did you grow up and how did that might have influenced, you know, why you are so active? Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. I'm happy to share that. Um, I was actually born and raised in Boulder, Colorado, Mm -hmm. which really surprises people when they see me. They don't immediately think Boulder, you know, being a visibly Muslim woman uh, who is very determined and involved in the political space. Mm -hmm. It's just really not the the vibe of Boulder. Um, I was born and raised there. And growing up there, I think I had a really relatively good childhood, not feeling like I was different from anyone else. And then the tragedy of 9-11 happened and I was in fifth grade at the time, Mm. only 10 years old. And I instantly felt like my family, my community of Muslims were targeted, were blamed. And all of a sudden I felt like I was an other and I didn't Mm. belong in the place that I was born and raised. And, you know, in particular, when I was in high school, I dealt with a lot of Islamophobia and bullying and discrimination for my identity and of being a visible Muslim woman, meaning I wear the hijab or the headscarf for people who don't know what that is. And I, you know, was 14 years old dealing with these situations of bullying, being called a terrorist on a daily basis, having derogatory notes left in my locker, people telling me to go back to where I came from. Little did they know or understand that it was the hospital right down the road, Boulder Community Hospital. Um, you know, students trying to rip off my hijab in school. And so the bullying, the discrimination essentially got like really bad that I felt that I was at this crossroads at 14 years old and had this burden of like, what am I going to do in this situation? Because I can't keep going on like this. Um, It wasn't sustainable. It wasn't healthy. And I was tired of it. So, you know, by God's grace and mercy, I used the only tool that I really had, which was my voice to do something about it. So I was part of an initiative called Diversity Panel, which is, you know, sounds very cliche, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a panel of diverse students from all different backgrounds and all different identities 
who came together and shared their personal narratives in front of incoming freshman classes. And the idea was that if we can get ahead of the culture in that school, as people are coming in and set the tone to be one of acceptance and love and breaking down these barriers um, between people that hopefully we could shift the bullying in the school. Because for me, it wasn't just about my own personal experience. I was worried about, you know, my younger sisters who were going to be coming into the school later. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, anybody who had an identity that was targeted and made to feel less than human, less than valuable on for those identities. So that was my priority was what do I do to make it better for everyone else? And so diversity panel, I remember we walked into the first one and I could feel the tension and we were all so nervous. I mean, imagine we were thinking to ourselves, you know, there's so much risk with putting yourself out there and being vulnerable in this way, Mm -hmm. especially in a setting like high school, right? So we were thinking, what if the bullying gets worse? What if they laugh straight at our faces? What if, you know, this is a complete bust and it doesn't work out? Um, And then we had just put ourselves out there for no reason. But then as we all started sharing our stories and hearing these experiences, I could feel the energy shift in the room. And we had a guidance counselor be in the space with us. And after we were done presenting, she would ask the room, you know, anyone have any reflections they want to share? Just open it up in a safe and respectful way. And I'll never forget that first one where people literally outed themselves as bullies in that room and Mm -hmm. said, you know, I've bullied people, not necessarily the individuals on the panel, but individuals who share the same identities as people on the panel. And they made a commitment in front of all of us for accountability of like, never going to do that again. Mm -hmm. Other people were able to relate and connect to the different experiences some of us had and maybe shared the same experiences that I had, but not because they were Muslim, but because they had a different identity. Hmm. So quickly we started to see these walls of like ignorance and hate being torn down and these beautiful bridges being built to replace them. Diversity panel was so successful. We were asked to do it for all classes, not just incoming Mm -hmm. freshmen. So by the time I graduated, I had shared my story to over 3000 students. And, you know, I found my voice in high school, but I really feel like I found my purpose in college. Mm -hmm. And I went, I stayed in Boulder. I went to CU Boulder for undergrad. And at that point, you know, I felt very confident in my identity as a Muslim woman. I was on this mission. I didn't know what I was going to do in college. To be honest with you, I had no idea (laughs) the words activism, advocate. None of that was in my vocabulary. None of that was socialized in my community. So I just thought, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And I gravitated towards architecture, which also is another fun fact that people are surprised by that I actually did my undergrad in architecture. Mm. And the reason why I chose architecture is because one of the ways that I would cope with the bullying growing up was by drafting and drawing. So I would Mm. spend so much time and filling up notebooks and notebooks of, of sketches and drawings from like landscapes to portraits and everything in between. And so I felt like that, I really loved that. I had a passion for that. And then the other part of it was I really wanted to create an environment and spaces that brought community together, that served that purpose of being like that space of diversity panel. And so I thought, okay, the really good marriage of these two ideas is architecture. So I started in architecture school and I quickly realized 
that I wanted to get involved in school politics and making the the campus a better place, a more inclusive place, a more representative place. And so that began my journey in, in running for student government and student elections, which is a very long journey, probably too long for this podcast. But I, what I will share is I ran in the most contentious student body election that the history of the university had ever seen. Hmm. Uh, you know, before I ran uh, to be president of the student body, the highest number of votes had ever been cast in an election, you know, it was like 6,000 votes out of a student body of 33,000. When I ran, it surprised, it surpassed double that in one week of voting. And, you know, some people were like, wow, it's not a great job, like getting out the vote. And for me, it was quite the opposite. It was just to show you how polarizing the campus was. You know, the uh, opposing ticket that ran against me, they spent their entire campaign smearing my name, smearing my identities, you know, leaving, again, derogatory comments about me and, and notes about me in classroom boards, defiling campaign posters, spreading rumors, just very malicious. And it was all about my identities. And it was all about why are we going to allow this Muslim woman to be the president of our student body, the most powerful student government in the country, by the way, where they had a budget of $36 million that they allocated out with no, like complete autonomy, no supervision, nothing. So the first time I ran, um, I remember at the end of the election week, we were all in the student center, you know, my whole team and, and their whole team, and we were waiting for the results. And out comes the administrator. So the student government was so powerful, it actually had paid staff working for them. So the administrator comes out and she knew me and I really liked her. And she tells us the difference between the winning and the losing ticket was about a hundred votes. Wow. So I'm thinking to myself, really? Like these people got that close to us? Like I couldn't even believe mm. how close it was because I was like, how? How could anyone support a ticket that was not inclusive? that actively denied funding for student groups of color, for student groups of minority backgrounds, for student groups who are underrepresented. I mean, there was a path, there was a pattern and trend of how horrible they were to students like me. And then she looks at me and right before she posts the results, she mouths, I'm so sorry. And so we were actually the losing ticket and we had lost by about a hundred votes and we were devastated. I mean, when I tell you just dozens and dozens of us falling to the ground, like just in tears, couldn't believe what we had seen. And we were so demotivated at that point mm. because you just feel like you fight for the justice, you fight for truth, you speak truth to power, mm -hmm. and then you end up in the position where it doesn't matter and it doesn't actually lead to change. What I committed myself to was to try again, despite many, many obstacles and challenges. I knew that I had a purpose bigger than this. Mm -hmm. So we tried again the next year, we ran again, but this time we won. I actually got the highest number of votes any student had ever received in the history of the university. And I remember when I won, you know, yeah, thank God. I wasn't excited just for me. I mean, for me, I, to be honest with you, I was pretty drained. At that point, I was like, I don't even, I know that I did not do this for me. I did this for everyone after me and to set a precedent of welcoming students from all backgrounds and all identities into these spaces of power, of authority, of decision-making, autonomy, mm -hmm. and having my agency be my own. 
And so I knew you know, this is about my senior year that I was not going to be an architect at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but I was still in the program and I was actually doing really, really well. Like I mm. had really high grades and I was very talented. You know, and I'll say that about myself because I really own that part of my life. Mm-hmm. But at that point I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? You know, and I didn't have the privilege to start all over again. And my parents had worked really hard to get me through college. So I decided to finish with a degree and graduate with it, but that I was going to change paths and directions after. I remember sitting my parents down, my mom and dad, and I looked at them and I said, mama, baba, so I just want to tell you a decision I made. And they were like, okay. I said, I'm not going to be an architect anymore. And the first thing, you know, coming from a Syrian immigrant family, as I'm sure you can probably understand, or anyone who's an immigrant child of immigrants in this, who's listening to this, is that, you know, your parents do everything possible to afford you the opportunities to reach your full potential, to have a life of dignity, of being financially secure, and that American dream, you know, that they all immigrated here in hopes of an in search of. And so when I tell them I'm not going to be an architect, first it was like shock. Then it was confusion. Then it was like, oh my God, maybe she wants to be a doctor. Like maybe that's what's going to happen here. Of course, no, shout out to all the doctors. My sister's a doctor, so they got one in the family, okay? So um, I tell them I'm a social architect and that is the name I gave myself. Mm. Uh, Because again, I didn't know the word activist, advocate. And to me, a social architect is somebody who connects people to causes and makes positive change. Mm. That is what I truly believed I needed to do in my life. And so when I told them this, they sort of just looked at me. My dad's an academic, he's a professor. And he said, Baba, I don't, I've never heard of this career. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true because I just made that up, you know? Um, so I described it to him mm-hmm. and he still didn't really get it. And then he's like, I'm, I'm like very certain there's probably no money in this career. Like where you want to go? And he was right. There's really no money in this career. Um, and I told him it's not about the money. You know, I have something so much greater than money that I'm trying to achieve in this world to create and then my mom looked at me you know god bless her and she goes are you sure you don't want to be a dentist i feel like you have really nice teeth to be a dentist (laughs) and i looked at her and said no you know i don't want to be a dentist again like whoever's listening shout out to all the dentists we need you we applaud you we support you my brother-in-law is a periodontist so i always tell him this but that's just not my thing and not my calling so i finished the architecture degree and I knew I was on this mission for social architecture. I knew I had to get out of Boulder. I knew I needed to go to the political epicenter of the world, DC. And so I made that move with my family in 2012 after I graduated college. And I've been here ever since. You know, I've worked in a variety of different NGOs, working on a, um, a multitude of issue areas, including the Syrian humanitarian crisis. You know, being Syrian, I felt very compelled to use my privilege mm-hmm. and my position and access here to stand up and speak out for my people, then working on a variety of humanitarian crises, and then working at Oxfam for four, for four years, leading their migration work uh, and their migration campaigns across the board from refugees to asylum seekers to temporary protected status holders and fighting against horrible discriminatory policies like the Muslim bans. Mm-hmm. 
And then to the ACLU, where I was much more domestically focused, but still working on immigration and actually leading their national ICE detention campaign and really finding the commonalities and similarities of all that work across the board, you know, like the root causes of why people flee remain the same, no matter how they're fleeing, right? No matter how they're coming. It's not a choice. You don't flee by choice. And I think that's one of the biggest myths that I try to dispel all the time. So I was able to work in advocating for those people in those communities that are most horribly impacted, that we tend to forget about, or we tend to feel like are just statistics when we watch it on the news. And that's what brings me to today, you know, and Mm -hmm. part of all this journey of my professional development, I've also wanted to build my personal commitment to this space. And so I created a social media platform called Isra Speaks, and it's very direct, but it's the fact that I really know the power of my voice and I want to lead with that mm-hmm. and say, when you, when I'm speaking, I want to be heard, but I don't need you to agree with me, but I have agency. I own my own narrative. I don't let anyone diminish or take away my Muslim identity, my Syrian American identity or twist it in any way. Um, But this platform is all about encouraging people and influencing them to be part of that social change, to be those social architects, to Mm -hmm. be those advocates, those activists who are committed in any way, shape or form to making this world a better place. And, you know, I don't think that's cheesy at all. People constantly say like, maybe it's cheesy. I'm like, it's not cheesy. If we all had the mentality of being advocates on the individual level and using our voice, using our privilege, using our access to stand in solidarity and be accomplices with other communities who are under attack, imagine where we would be in the world today. Mm. When people think it's cheesy to be that way or would rather choose apathy, or my favorite is when people tell me, hey, Isra, you know, I'm not political, so I don't really know what to do. I have to constantly remind them that, you know, your identity in itself is political. Mm-hmm. In the world that we're living in today, that is it. It's whether you come to accept it or not and what you're going to do with that. But it's already been politicized. We have elected officials politicizing every identity across the spectrum. We have right-wing media continuously, you know, vilifying people using hate-mongering, fear-mongering tactics to build a really, really challenging society. So it really is on all of us as a collective to be part in building the world that we want to see, that we want to live in, one that accepts all people, that respects all people, no matter what their identities are, and that allows everyone to own their own narrative and you know, give them that agency that they don't need permission to have by any means, but in, we're living in a culture that doesn't allow people to thrive in that way I think Mm -hmm. and so the idea is how do we all come together and create that because I truly believe and this is my biggest motto with my platform is that change is on all of us Mm. and thanks for sharing all that I have a couple of questions that I would like to um a fascinating story so i i I would like to understand still more about the journey but the first thing that uh struck me is that you know you were born and raised in boulder yeah and for me if i think about the u.s um boulder you know how i understand it it's it's uh, one of the more progressive communities in the u.s at least that's that's reputation has it so yeah, so you know, you seem to have have a uh, different experience at least 
what I understood, you know, is after 9-11, something changed also in Boulder. So uh, maybe a little bit about that. And the other thing I would like to understand is, um, you know, you were experiencing discrimination, et cetera, yourself. Um, but who put you then into action? Was it your parents, friends, or was it something that you felt yourself? You know, I, I need to stand up and do something against that. Or was it your, you know, you, you mentioned about a counselor that mm -hmm. were involved, was involved with the diversity uh, council as well. Um, and then another quick question is, um, were there only Muslims on the diversity council or was it a, you know, really a, a mixed, mixed bag? Yeah, of course. So first off, yes, that is the perception that many people have of Boulder, mm -hmm. that it is the most progressive and they're like an ideal city for hiking and in nature. And that's so true. So what I'll say is that Boulder is very progressive when it comes to environmental rights, mm -hmm. when it comes to other aspects and other identities, I think there's there's multiple movements, right? And if you can be progressive as a culture and a community in one way, but then be completely lacking in another way. And that's how I would describe Boulder. Boulder is yeah. a very beautiful town. It's a college town. People really enjoy the nature there. And that's great. And it thrives in environmental rights amongst other movements. But where Boulder really lacks is the understanding of supporting diverse communities. Mm. And, you know, that is my real experience. Yeah. And, you know, I will speak that because that is what I lived through. And there was a total disconnect with how they treat Muslims in particular, mm -hmm. and, you know, I can only speak to my identity and my experience, mm -hmm. but Boulder was not diverse in any way, shape or form. I was, you know, I think the only Muslim who wore hijab at my school. I don't like in my high school of mm -hmm. 3000, we did not have a very predominant big Muslim or Arab community. And a lot of that, I think, is because the community and the culture there just wasn't one where they could thrive. You know, now that I live in the DMV, DC, Maryland, Virginia, area, I see what it looks like to have a really robust, healthy, diverse community mm -hmm. where I can see multiple mosques around, where I see Arabic grocery stores, where I see, you know, uh, school programs and even schools, private schools that are focused on, you know, learning Arabic and, and the Islamic faith that didn't really exist in Boulder. Mm -hmm. That was all something that our parents had to do for the the few kids that lived there. You know, my parents fundraised for years to be able to open up a mosque. Our mosque growing up was an apartment, literally an apartment. Like that's where we went and prayed. And people didn't realize that of like, that's like a really small thing that could have been set up in the community. Mm -hmm. People could have supported us, but it didn't. It took literally so many years to get a mosque and it ended up being a church that the mosque bought, the community bought and turned it into a mosque. So that's one of the challenges, you know, there's, there was a, the nearest Arab grocery store, Middle Eastern grocery store was in Denver. You mm -hmm. had to drive an hour to get there. I mean, that's not inclusive. Right. And so mm -hmm. you start to see like, okay, we don't necessarily have all that we need to thrive here. Um, and that's part of why I'm so grateful to the community I live in now. Mm -hmm. And I really believe this is actually home for me because I feel like it's an amazing place where I feel like I belong I don't, ex I experience obviously still microaggressions and Islamophobia and to a certain extent, but not the way I used to. Mm -hmm. I don't walk around being stared at and gawked at all the time, which, you know, happens in Boulder. Even the most recent visit I had a few years ago, I had those experiences all over again in terms of just like 
feeling like I was an other, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a feeling you can shake off easily. So that's our history there. Right. And that's how I feel about that community in terms of diversity panel and what motivated me. It was really myself. I mean, I have mm-hmm. a very supportive family. I'm one of seven kids. I'm right in the middle and we have each other's backs and we're mm-hmm. always there to support each other, siblings and with my parents. And so I knew that, you know, how the way my parents raised me, the, the culture that they built at home, the culture was one of which you speak up for truth and justice, even if it's hard, you speak up, even if you're the only one standing up and speaking up. So that's what my faith teaches me. And that's, those are the values that I was that were really instilled in me from a young age. So I knew, you know, given those values, given the support of my family and how I was raised, that that was on me. So that's what motivated me to sort of take this action and do something about it. And in terms of the diversity panel, there were students from all different identities on that panel. Um, barely any since I think I was the only one who was on that panel, mm-hmm. but students who identify differently, religiously, racially, um, ethnicity, ability, you know, the list goes on. Anybody was welcome to join it if they felt like they cared an identity that was targeted or they were bullied because of. So it was open and very inclusive, very representative to everybody. Okay. Um, no, thanks for that. That's uh, helpful. Talk a little bit more about um you know, Israel speaks, but what do you, you know, what I'm also fascinated by is that you, you know, you have, uh, you know, you work for Oxfam, work for ACLU, so you have work and then you do also Israel speak. Where do you find the time? How do you combine that? And so that's one question. And the other question is, what is ultimate, ultimately, you know, five years from now, what do you hope that Israel speaks would have accomplished? Hmm. That's a good question, Maurice. So the first one, you know, I'm very regimented in my time, extremely disciplined. And people constantly ask me, how do you do all that you do? But when you're passionate and you know it's your purpose, you just make it work. And the beautiful thing about it is that my professional career aligns with what my personal movement and like motivations are. So I never feel like I'm doing two separate things. I always look at one as a supplement to the other and a continuation of that. So what I'm doing at work feeds into my Easter Speaks platform. What I'm doing with Easter Speaks, I feed into work. And mm. that's a really beautiful way of doing this purpose living. And that's why I think it makes it work and why it's successful is because I'm able to do that. But I am very regimented with time. I also have an 18-month-old. So I'm a very busy mom. And, um, you know, that is my number one priority is being a good mom to my son and raising him in the best way possible to be an incredible advocate and an activist. He's already been to multiple protests, which is awesome. So just to say that, um, but that's so that you just have to be really disciplined and structured with my time. I think I schedule everything mm-hmm. and literally sometimes you can look at my calendar and see that I have something every hour of the day. And some people that may overwhelm them, but to me, it just keeps me on track. And I'm so, I feel so accomplished and productive at the end of the day. And some days when I just need a break and not to say that I go hundred miles per hour every day, but what I need to just relax, I also give myself that space and time. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to burn out. And I also know what it looks like to burn out as an activist. And I've had the support systems in place to prevent that for me, but um, that's how I'm able to manage it both. Mm-hmm. And the second question I forgot what it was already. Oh, the next five years. Mm. Oh, this is a good one. I just, 
I feel like what I would want in the next five years is what I see and feel now about it. Honestly, it doesn't really change. I just want it to be a platform in which people come and feel heard, feel seen, Mm -hmm. feel valued and feel empowered to take action and inspired and motivated to do something with their life, with their access and their privilege to help others, whether that's volunteering their time for a nonprofit, doing get out the vote, you know, canvassing before an election, making calls, just talking about these real issues with their friends and Mm -hmm. having and being socialized concepts of like, we should care about the things that are happening in the world. And we should figure out the best way of how we can contribute to that. No matter what our careers are, there's an opportunity to as human beings to participate in that way. So I would just want it to keep growing. Mm -hmm. I would want it to continue to serve that purpose and, you know, just hopefully just get bigger and, and, have more advocates under the umbrella. Mm-hmm. If, if people are listening now um, and they, they feel like, hmm, should I check out, you know, israelspeaks.com? That's, that's the, the that's website. My website right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, should they do it? And, 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 you know, why should they go there and, and, and what can they expect? Yeah. Or they can, can they connect with you? Definitely. Well, I hope that everyone goes and checks it out. I think it's mm-hmm. great. Um, you know, not to self promote myself, I guess. <laughs> no, you, should. you always have to do that as well. Well, maybe so. <laughs> you kind of set me up for it, Bernie. So I'm just gonna go along with it. But I would encourage people to connect with me on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, my Instagram is probably my most ad- active platform. The handles at Isra Speaks. And, you know, I'm always sharing different campaigns that I'm part of, different ways to take action, and also sharing parts of my life and parts of my journey and like reflections and learnings and experiences, because I think that we could all use a little bit more of just talking and being ourselves unapologetically and owning our voice unapologetically. And that's where I connect with um, a variety of different people globally and different mm-hmm. ages and different communities. And it's just such an amazing place. Social media has been so wonderful for me, despite its many challenges that, you know, many people can agree on. I think for me is I was able to create this space mm-hmm. and I'm very intentional about what I say, how I say it, what I post. And I think that that's why I've been able to create genuine connections and authentic connections with people around the globe. So, you know, you can always send me a message on Instagram uh, you can always look at my website. I have a contact form there. You know, one of the ways that I engage with youth in particular that my platform has really helped me with is by having youth groups and other organizations or companies reach out for me to come do a talk with them through my platform. So that's been an amazing thing. I love public speaking. I love being able to share my story with an audience, connecting with people across the country, but across the world as well. And having that space where we can all come together and just really hear each other and inspire one another and empower one another in that way. And so that's what I love doing. And and that my platform has really provided me those amazing opportunities to go to different campuses or go to different conferences and have that platform mm-hmm. where my voice is amplified. And so I definitely encourage people if there's an opportunity that they think that I would be helpful that I could contribute in any positive way to also reach out with that because I'd love mm-hmm. to hear about it. I'd love to participate in it and learn more. No, and I really encourage the listeners to check out your website. And, and there are a lot of YouTube, um, you know, 
films as well, videos. And so you can get a flavor of, of uh, what you are about and what you're all doing. So I really would encourage Thanks, that. Thanks, Maurice. Um, Isra, this, this um, podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I've been doing since 2012. And that was to raise awareness and funds for hunger, poverty, and injustice. But, you know, then during COVID, I could not walk. Well, I, I was still walking, but I could not walk with, with uh, co-walkers. So only virtually. So that's why I started this. Um, Anyway, my, my question is, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week or, uh, you know, this year I did it for five days. Wow. Uh, in five days, yeah. Got an injury as a result. Good for you, though. <laughs> yeah. 100 why, why, miles. Yeah. No, 15, 20, 15 to 20 miles a day, it means. so. Um, Maurice, I get exhausted after one when I'm walking. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I feel we will We way. will do it together next year. So, awesome. so uh, um yeah, why, why would you, for which cause would you walk 100 miles in a week? So many. Oh what my drives goodness. you in life? Yeah. To be honest with you, I'd walk for any cause. If I knew mm. that me walking would help a cause, yeah. me up. and I would go through it. I'd go through the exhaustion, the motions, mm -hmm. the injuries that come with that. I'm so committed to anyone in any group, in any org that is doing good work mm -hmm. that I don't have a specific cause. But what I've done, I just, you know, went and saw the Gaza 5K which was mm -hmm. last weekend here in DC. Okay. And that was in support of UNRWA USA to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency mm -hmm. USA um, in support of Palestine refugees. Um, I do a lot uh, as a public advocate for them. Mm -hmm. I would walk. I mean, if we could do a 5K, I would do 100 miles for them in a heartbeat. Um, any any organization, any cause, truly, there's so many of them that I, and I'm really passionate about intersectional issues, whether it's like immigration, education, public health, just so many, so many. Mm -hmm. So yeah, any cause, Maurice, Great. I don't know the Note, answer you get a lot. Noted, noted. Um, yeah. Thanks. Hey, and you know, while, when, when I walk, actually, I, I, um, it's it's really often becomes you know spiritual experience. You know, you start uh, there is something in, with walking, and you also think about you know why are we here on earth, etc. Yeah. etc. So um, yeah, and 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 then uh, when I talk about this with my co-workers, we often talk about you know what is happening uh, with youth and spirituality and religion. And is that changing or, or is it still the same? Or is it only the difference is that maybe, you know, in a lot of uh, countries in, in the US as well as in Europe, um, younger generation has something against institutionalized religion. Um, so there are a lot of co conversations. My question to you is, what do you, you, what do you see happening among youth in your community mm. in relation to religion and spirituality? I mean, for me, what I witness is youth wanting to be closer to their spirituality and their religion, because I think with all the difficulties we're seeing in the world, all the injustice, all the oppression, mm -hmm. it's really tough, right, to process mentally and emotionally and to try to find a greater purpose to it all. And so I think, you know, religion for me is my anchor. It's my foundation. And I feel like that is what people are seeking is an anchor to be able to hold on to, to know that with all hardship comes ease, to know that these challenges will hopefully be resolved and we need our faith and that trust in the plan, the trust in each other to be able to get through it. Um, 
for me, faith enables me emotionally to get the strength and the patience in the work that I do. And I think that that's what I've been witnessing as well is that now it's about like, let's talk about our faith. Let's talk about why we believe in these things and, and what does that look like? And for those who don't have those same beliefs, that's okay too, right? Like there are universal I think universal concepts and themes with between all people, like I think everybody wants a better world to live in. I think everybody wants justice to prevail. I think everybody agrees that violence is not the answer, et cetera. So there's like fundamental truths, I think, across mm-hmm. the board. But the idea for me is that even in people getting closer to their faith and their own spirituality, how do we also create an environment for everybody, no matter where they're at on that spectrum, to feel welcomed, heard, and respected? And that's the most important thing. You don't need everyone to believe the same thing you do. And you're never going to find that, right? We know that. But how do I, as Isra, show up for those other communities using my faith as my foundation and my anchor? How do I model the best behavior and being so inclusive and, and respectful of other people and where they're at? I think that's what we all could really continue to commit ourselves to mm-hmm. and be very intentional about. And, you know, I, I heard you say, you know, the the youth, the younger generation is longing for this. Are yeah. they finding it? I think so. Uh, you know, from what I've seen, mm-hmm. oh, man, it's so wonderful because I feel like when I was growing up, I would have loved to have all these programs that I see that now mm-hmm. universities are doing, schools are doing. There's so many ways for people to find other people of that faith of that you know spirituality and come together and so i feel like there's more spaces whether that's virtual or in person where people are able to find those connections and find their home you know where they belong and it's beautiful so i feel like they're longing for it but they're if they're not finding it youth are creating those spaces which is what i encourage 100 percent that you know don't let the status quo remain the status quo if you disagree with it and if it's challenging and harmful then take it upon yourself, like that's pretty much on the moral of my story, hmm. to change it, right? Because it's not just going to change itself if you sit back and don't, you know, delegate it to somebody else to change. Don't expect Isra or another activist or another, you know, political official to come hmm. in and change things. You have to play an active role in creating the world that you want to be part of. You know, you, you, you're, I mean, when I asked you about the cause, you said any cause I will walk for. Um, yeah. Okay. I would like to go. Yeah. Try to, to, for you to prioritize. What worries you most at the moment? Immigration. What worries me most is that there are so many people who are vilified because of conditions and circumstances out of their control, Hmm. whether they're fleeing from persecution, war, natural disaster, in search of better opportunities, in search of safety, in search of feeling the agency that they deserve. It just breaks my heart that they are so vilified and they're up against this really monstrous system and culture and noise by these people that have a microphone and they're the loudest um, in fighting against that. 
and having to come into new environments and new countries and new spaces already with so many stereotypes, so many myths to break through. And so that is what worries me the most is like, where are we going as a society? How are we heading and how are we supporting and welcoming those that we really should be? And that's like a pillar of our faith, mm. but it's also beyond that a pillar for me. It's a moral obligation, mm. no matter where you come from or what you believe. It's a moral human rights obligation to support, you know, your brother and sister and these people that are on these horrendous journeys and they are resilient, they are strong, they're courageous, but they also have every right to be here, you know, and that's like, that's my mentality and that's what I advocate every day. But that's what worries me the most is just how many people are separated from their families, mm-hmm. how many people are detained unfairly, how many people you know, are struggling to get recognition, whether it's through a status uh, or just even being welcomed in a community with that label on them. It's just horrible. It's really tough. Where do you still see hope? With our youth, with the people that I've seen online, with content creators, with public figures, with activists and advocates and the people I work with offline on the ground. And we come together like we did a few weeks ago or in March, we did a uh, family detention rally outside the White House. We marched together, all of us from different backgrounds and calling on the administration to not separate families, not detain families. That's the hope in those moments when we all are collectively amplifying our voices and our message very clearly, it's a beautiful feeling and it like energizes me to keep going. And when I see the impact of what I'm doing, it motivates me to keep going tenfold. And so that's where I see the hope. I know there's so much hope in this world. And that's also like, I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. Clearly I would, I don't think I would be doing this if I wasn't, but I will tell you that having the idea of like you playing a part in building that hope keeps you moving and keeps you going. You you, uh, said a a couple of minutes ago that, you know, all of us would like to see, you know, a better world. Um, And and for me, it's, it's kind of simplified in the sustainable development goals that we developed uh, together it's not perfect um, but at least you know there was some discussion some discussions going on in the world and we came up with these 17 sustainable development goals so my question to you is there are a couple of aspects to this uh, one is do you agree with me um, about the you know the SDGs and the you know the importance um, if so, uh, what do you want the listeners to know about the SDGs? And then the second part of the discussion is that we are not going to reach those uh, SDGs. Uh, so we're behind. It has you know, several uh, reasons. But one of the reasons is, according to a growing group of people around the world, is that we never paid attention to the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you need as an individual and as a community to really work on those systematic changes. So as a result, uh, they developed the inner development goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, five inner development goals are there. Um, being, thinking, relating, collaborating, and action. So the second part of my question is, any thoughts about the inner development goals? So yeah, the first part is SDGs. 
the second part is IDGs. Oh my goodness. Maurice, did you have to end the conversation on this tough, you know, this tough point? <laughs> I feel like we could talk about it forever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I support the SDGs. Of course I do. I think the one we can come together and unify around really key goals and humanitarian values of just basic human rights and dignity for so many people, whether it's you know, poverty, the zero hunger, the access to education, the life below water. I mean, we the SDGs to me encompass it all from infrastructure to culture to societal pressures and expectations, et cetera. So I think that the SDG goals, while very idealist, are successful in that way. And I think that people need to a, I think it actually should be more socialized amongst youth. I think a lot of people don't know what SDGs are. They hear about it. They just think UN and what the UN is doing, but they don't understand that it's not just the UN doing it, that it has to be a collective mm-hmm. effort for all of us to participate in, whether it's an individual level or an organization level, it trickles down. And the idea, I think, for it was to have that ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the IDGs really come in is like that, the, that ripple effect how do you humanize it? How do you practice it? How do you make it one in which is tangible for people as goals, as outcomes? I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that one of the biggest drivers of people wanting to see change is current events. Mm-hmm. And when something so horrifying happens, I think that's a lot of times people then are motivated to take action. But I really want us to shift away from like an emergency response, crisis response mentality in this world and more towards how do we build like the infrastructure in the long term to see these shifts institutionally happen. A lot of the shifts with SDGs and IDGs, a lot of what we're calling on is going to take a lot of time to achieve, right? Like zero Mm -hmm. hunger, that's going to take a long time. And it's funny because it, you feel like it could be resolved so easily if we all just participate in it and we all really focused on it. But there's so many different issues, so many different causes that it's hard to keep you know, track of and how you motivate people on multiple fronts to move on issues. But I think if there's a commitment to looking at the long term, to thinking through how to make things sustainable, to how those little actions every day build up a long-term you know, successful goal, that's how we need to be like perceiving it. It can't just be an idealist perspective. It needs to be an achievable goal that's going to take time, but there are benchmarks and milestones and how we can start achieving those like goals and moving towards them in our communities and our own individual lives. One of the things that um i try to do with this podcast is to really connect people and to show you know that people might have different perspectives but it doesn't mean that they cannot discuss and talk with each other and and because i believe you know if you start a dialogue that ultimately will lead to more understanding and, and and a better world um so i always have a question of my previous guest or my present guest and for for you the question is well, you know, uh, there's a question I ask of um, when I have an opportunity to, to talk to prospective students for Pacific School of Religion. I certainly ask it of every person I'm interviewing for a position, uh, whether it's uh, a faculty person, uh, a administrative staff, a custodian, uh, anybody who's interviewing with us. One of the questions we ask is, who is your community of accountability on whose behalf? 
do you do your work? Uh, and that's a question I think that's critical for all of us to constantly wrestle with. The work we do, the commitments we have, uh, it must be done for a particular community. So I'd love to hear from the guests, who is their community of accountability? What is it, who, who, on whose behalf do they do their work? Uh, I do my work, I don't think it's on behalf of anyone but myself. I do my work for myself in terms of like my own identities. That's that I'm responsible for that, owning my voice, doing whatever I can. But I do my work to amplify the voices of people who don't have the platform that I do, don't have the access, the privilege that I do, no matter what it is that they identify as, represent, what issue they're facing. It doesn't matter to me. For me, that's my responsibility. My role is to amplify their voices, not to give them a voice because nobody is voiceless. Everyone has a voice, but a lot of times it's just about the reach and the platform in which they can share and own their identities. In terms of who I'm accountable to, I think I'm accountable to everyone. And I feel like that's an important thing. Like I'm not driven by my ego. I don't have a echo chamber built around me of people just telling me yes all the time or people telling me that I'm amazing all the time. Absolutely not. And I think that's very dangerous and harmful, by the way, for leaders today is when you intentionally create that space around you. I don't want to think I'm right all the time. I want to be called out and challenged when I'm not thinking of something correctly, when I make a mistake, because we all make mistakes. I want to be able to reflect. I want to be able to be held accountable by the people around me. So for me, my accountability system is my family. It's my mentors. It's my, you know, my work colleagues. It's everyone. It's the people, my audience on social media. Like there is importance in what people say. And I have to hear those things. And more than anything, you know, I'm on this journey of learning and growing as is everyone else. I will make mistakes as is everyone else. But it's so important to just come at these things from a sense of humility, a sense of understanding, of reflection, and realizing that this work is so much bigger than our individual egos. And we have to be committed and challenging ourselves to be able to move that needle um, because we're not perfect and this work is not perfect. And so you just have to always be committed to growing, to learning and being held accountable. And your question for the next guest. What's my question for the next guest? Mm -hmm. Ooh. My question, I think, would be, how do you show up for other communities? How would you describe how you show up? Okay. And what does it mean to show up for a community? Um, I have a couple of questions, but I uh, would like to go more rapid fire, so you know, shorter uh, answer. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think it's still going on. But Steve Hartman of CBS um, in the US uh, examines how one simple act of kindness creates a ripple effect. Um, my question to you is: What are your thoughts about, you know, a simple act of kindness uh, and its potential to to uh, create a ripple effect and then the second part of the question is 
if I would ask you right now to come up with a simple act of kindness, I mean, this week, uh, what would you do? Okay. I completely agree that it does create a ripple effect. I also think that in that act of kindness, you can break down stereotypes, misconceptions easily when people see that personality and who you are. And one act of kindness I would do this week is I'd buy somebody coffee. If I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who you are, at least for a big part, um, what piece of music or song would that be and why? This is hard. I've, I don't listen to music often, to be honest with you. I'm like, I don't listen big time. But one song that I really like and I gravitate towards and I said tend to send to all my um, friends is Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys. And it's just a very motivational anthem for people doing a great job for giving you that reassurance that you are on the right track, that you are just amazing. You are unstoppable. And if you just believe in your voice, you can do anything. Are you unstoppable? Yeah. A hundred percent. I got to say that. Definitely. If nothing has stopped me up to this point, Maurice, I'm definitely unstoppable. <laughs> I, I think you are. Um, yeah. Any message, invitation or question for the listeners? Just really thinking about what your individual role in the world that we're living in is. How are you committing yourself to making the world a better place? Even if it's through these small acts of kindness in these small ways, it doesn't, again, have to be grand gestures or actions. It's just the small things in your local community, in your family, with your friends that lead to that change. So just really challenge yourself to do, to commit to that and figure out your place and how you can be part of the collective to make change. Any question that I should have asked you, but didn't? No, I think you covered it all. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, I guess you, you didn't ask me my favorite color. And that's the most basic thing. I feel like it indicates so much about personality, um, which I'll answer myself. Yeah, I, I see you nodding. It's funny because I have a favorite color. It's a non-color supposedly, which is black, but I also like white. But I really love like lilac in terms of the mm. color stuff. And yellow. Yellow is so happy. So I just love the color yellow. And, and did, did that change over time, your favorite color? Yeah, I used to always be a fan of like blue. Mm -hmm. I never was a fan of red. But I think that I've just, you know, as you grow and evolve, and I think it's good to like other colors too, or non-colors. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what I forgot to ask you and was curious about? Because are you are you the first generation in your family who, who was born and raised in the, in the U.S.? Yes. Okay, so your parents were born in, in Syria. Syria, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, and are every is everybody living in DC now? Or my whole family? You... No, not everyone. Uh, we're spread apart a little bit, but the mm -hmm. majority of us are actually uh, in the Virginia area. Yeah, DC, Virginia. Okay. It's good stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. I have a brother in Louisiana. I have a brother in Texas, mm -hmm. and the rest of us girls are here. Okay. Great. Hey, I would like to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your presence today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners as well. Um, yeah, thank you.
Thanks so much, Maurice. I appreciate it. And thank you to everyone listening and giving me an hour of your time. I'm extremely grateful and appreciative. Great. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.